0: Today's episode is sponsored by Expectful, a guided meditation and mindfulness app for your fertility, pregnancy, and motherhood journey. It's easy and fun to use, as well as affordable. And did you know that science shows meditation can reduce anxiety and improve your relationships? Head to expectful.com/motherbirth for an exclusive one-month free trial just for Motherbirth listeners.
1: made the decision that this baby is not coming out. This baby is stuck in the same position because I know this feeling, I know this experience. At that point, the pain encompassed me because I had I I stepped out of that mindset of working with it and I was done with it.
0: Welcome to Mother Birth. We help women awaken the confidence that is already within. This is a space for vivid inspiring birth stories meaningful advice from guest experts, and honest exploration of what it means to become a mother. Hey everyone, welcome to Mother Birth Today. Laura and I are here with a guest that is someone I met recently on my travels. A lot of you know that I've also been traveling for the last few months and we just spent uh, a month and a half in the southern United States. so Nashville, Tennessee, Georgia, some areas around there. And I actually met our guest today through Airbnb, which is kind of kind of funny. We'll probably get a little bit more into that story. Um, but it was a very serendipitous connection. We ended up staying in her house while in Nashville and totally connected um, over a lot of things, including motherhood and, and all of the things that go with that. So Ashley Logston is our guest today. Ashley, do you want to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about you?
1: Yes. Thank you so much for having me on. And yeah, like Melissa said, it was such a, a great, uh, such a fun experience. Um, we have mm-hmm. been airbnb being our house, we do Airbnb and short-term rentals because we are also traveling, similar to what Melissa has done, but we have been RVing the States full-time with my family. I, uh, my husband and I have been married for 14 years, and we have three girls ages 11, 8, and 5. And um, as we've been traveling, one of the ways that kind of pays for the party is by renting our house out. And so Mm -hmm. um, it's been a, a really great way to help to cover even for campgrounds and things like that. But it's been fun to also meet the people that have stayed at our house. And when I saw Melissa, you know, us exchanging back and forth and just coming to find out we were both podcasters and we both had the same area of focus with mothers and families. So, um, it fit really well.
0: Yeah, it was, it was really cool when we, when we were first emailing me, when we were first emailing, I, I don't know if you remember, but the house wasn't even available and I just kept coming back to it and (laughs) finally got up the courage to just say like, Hey, I know it's not available, but maybe can we stay at your house anyways? And yeah, it just, it worked out perfectly. And I know that I was hoping that, you know, we would actually be able to spend some time together and get to know you guys and Uh hopefully the kids would connect. And that was, really kind of the best case scenario that totally happened. So
1: yeah, a little interesting coming to your own home that you had as a guest to visit. So (laughs) we had a lot of fun fun, uh, joking about that as you invited us into our living room.
0: (laughs) Yes. Well, and then we we spent a lot of time hanging out with your brother and sister-in-law too. And they were like, whenever they came over, they were like, this is so weird. We're hanging Uh out at our sister's house. It was pretty Uh funny. I think what it, what it goes to show is that when you travel for, you know, for any significant length of time, you learn really quickly how to make the most of the connections that are, that you're presented with and to go deep really quickly with people and, Mm -hmm. and to really, to optimize for, for those kind of connections. So, um, Mm -hmm. I'd love to kind of back up a little bit and we're, I think we'll talk more about your travel lifestyle and, and kind of some of the alternative quote unquote choices that you guys have made, but let's back up to kind of hearing a little bit more about your transition to motherhood. I know you have an 11, eight and five year old girls and, and what did you and Nathan always know that you would have kids? What was kind of the years leading up to your oldest daughter being born? What was that like?
1: Well, I mean, ever since I was a small kid, I loved the, just the um, the concept of, of having a family. I, I knew I always wanted to be a mommy. And so um, even throughout my life, it was always I know that one day I will be a mother. If not to my own biological children, I will be that role. And so I knew that was going to be a big part of it. Nathan uh, and I had differing views on the number of children that we were going to have, but we were both both good for the first three. I just wanted to go on further from there. Um, and I've, we fully expected and planned for the fact that we would have a house full of boys because mm. I was the only girl in my home and the uh, youngest of, of three children, two older brothers, and then Nathan is the oldest of three boys. and so Oh, wow we completely prepared our minds for we were going to have a house full of boys. So um, that was my first, you know, surprise that I had a girl, you know, that first shift of, wait, my life is not going to be a duplication of my, my (laughs) parents' life (laughs) and the children that they have and, um, kind of shifted a little bit. And then, you know, we had some adjustments as we went through and ended up with not just one, but three girls. Now I feel very Mm. confident with this gender, this has been good. (laughs) So at this point, um, after the third, then that, I. I had a friend one time who told me because she would asked, you know, are you finished having children? And I said, I wasn't sure. And she had just made the decision that they were done. And she says, when you know, you know, like when you're done, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and when my youngest turned two at that point, um, considering our family and what we wanted to do and the, um, energy level of our children and the birth stories that I have at that point, we knew that we were done. And so, um, and so we felt at that point, our family was complete with our three little girls.
2: Yeah. That's so interesting. I feel like a lot of people relate to that. I don't know what if, if like you're saying, mm-hmm. if it's like a projecting or the way you're dreaming of your family mm-hmm. or your, your family dynamic. And whether, you know, I think mm-hmm. there's like some of its numbers, like you said, or sometimes it's gender, but it's interesting that we build such mm-hmm. a crystallized picture and then we can kind of like see ourselves either tear it completely down or you see, like you said, mm-hmm. it's just kind of like continued like in an arc of like, okay, we're having a girl and another girl and we're having a house girl. girl. <laughs> <laughs> but so
0: right. many, so right. many people
2: will identify with that. I think it's such an interesting part of our like psyche that we have that attached, I don't know, like that picture.
0: Yeah. I think for me, you know, growing up with so many girls in my family, there's eight girls and two boys in my family. And I definitely felt more comfortable with, you know, mothering girls that just felt like a default setting that made a lot of sense. But then my oldest was a boy and then our second was a boy. And so I was like very much like you, like you were Mm -hmm. sharing, Ashley, just kind of in my my mind was like, okay, well, I'm going to be a mom of boys. And I remember really distinctly a friend of ours who was, um, kind of a mentor to, to my husband when he was younger, she had had three sons and she just had articulated on a number of different occasions that, having boys was her favorite and, you know, she just wouldn't have had it any other way. And I kind of locked onto that in my mind, like, oh, this is kind of not ideal, but just, I'm just going to go all in on being a boy mom, you know? Mm -hmm. And you just kind Mm -hmm. of like get it in your head that this is what your reality is going to be. And then something always, you know, not always, but it often doesn't look quite like we think it will.
1: Well, even when you are, um, you're very open to, uh, to, different type of lifestyle and um, maybe more, you know, liberal with your thinking, it doesn't necessarily mean that those, yeah, those subconscious things If this is the way things are supposed to be, don't, don't jump in. And especially as mothers, I mean, those things always come up. I mean, when I, when I talk with, uh, I haven't said yet, but I'm a marriage and family coach. And when I talk with new, with, with first time parents, one of the things when, when they, you know, announce that they're pregnant. One of the things that I say is that uh, there, there's three things you need to do before you get to the hospital or before you have your child, not just the hospital, before you have your baby. You need to educate yourself on cesareans, on vaccines, and on circumcision. And mm-hmm. the reason, and I'm not saying that, you know, you have to do it a certain way, it's not my my intention in that is not because it has to be swayed specifically as much as it is that those are areas that we need to educate ourselves on and mm-hmm. sometimes like in the case of vaccines and circumcision we choose to do something simply because well this is this is the way it's supposed to be that's what i thought i mean this is how mm-hmm. i was raised this was my lifestyle so it, i hadn't really i hadn't really pushed to kind of reset and think about okay wait this isn't this isn't my who I came or where I came from. This is where do I want to move forward to? What do I want yeah. for my family? And what's a good fit and a good decision for our family moving forward?
0: Yeah. And I know the cesarean thing is is close to your heart because of right. the birth experiences that you had that were you know so different from what you expected and from what you were hoping for going into those experiences. And I want to get to that, but I want to ask you first, Did you have any other expectations, including any expectations about birth, going into motherhood that came from how you were raised?
1: Um, Well, I anticipated of course, the birth order was the one thing the, with the mm-hmm. genders. Um, I expected to have a little bit larger children. Very thankful that did not happen. <laughs> I was not, I was nine three and thankfully my my biggest was eight three. So I was, I was okay with that. Um, and uh, other than that, some vaccines was a big thing for me because it was something that I had, I knew nothing about and it that was something that I didn't put a lot of stock into at the beginning and then at the end started getting started freaking out a bit because I realized, wait a second, I, I kept thinking I had more time and I forgot about the yeah. fact that, I mean, when you are in the hospital, there are so many decisions that are made before you leave. And in my situation, wow. I was going into a hospital setting. Um, I was at a very different stage in my life than where I am now and... I, yeah, I'm going to go in and I'm going to do everything they tell me to. And I hadn't really stepped up in my, in my own responsibility for my body. Mm-hmm. And I do have to say that the biggest turning point for that for me was reading Dr. Christian Northrup's book, Women's Bodies, Women's Wisdom. And yeah. yeah. Uh, She's so great. I figured uh-huh. you guys knew this book. <laughs> yeah. That, my sister-in-law, Ailea, you know her, Melissa. Mm-hmm. She gave me yeah. that book. And, of course, first I laughed because it was an 800-page book and I had a, a brand new baby. <laughs> and then I yeah. devoured every single page. And it changed me so much in recognizing... The power we have of being responsible for our own bodies and knowing them Mm. and not just Mm -hmm. not just placing the medical world as our enemy, but recognizing that why are we expecting them to read our minds and our bodies like nobody is going to know our body better than we do ourselves. And we need to own that and uh, kind of be able to take responsibility for it and see it as a beautiful thing, not just something broken that needs to be fixed.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. And I think when I read, I mean, I feel like I read that book probably in the time when I was really pursuing being a doula and being like, well, this book mm-hmm. has a really good title. It sounds like it's super relevant for what I'm trying to do. You know, okay. like, right. And, you know, I think I maybe had known one other person who had read it had the s- same reaction. I think I went to Pals and bought it for like $5, like an old copy mm-hmm. that looked like it should be like in a book exchange in Thailand or something. Right. And I was <laughs> like, I don't, I, this isn't really, uh, before I opened the book, I was just like, well, this is going to be like for me to learn stuff about like what I'm going to do. Like, this isn't for me. I'm just like, in my early twenties, I'm not like getting pregnant anytime soon. I'm not like going through menopause. I don't have hard periods. Like I wasn't there to problem solve, I guess, you know, (laughs) but I was so shocked by that realization that you shared so beautifully where it was like, you kind of awakened to this idea of like, oh, this is a whole space I've never opened myself up to about myself. Right. Mm-hmm. And it it's empowering for you, but it's empowering. We talk about this. It's empowering as a mom to come. You have to make those decisions for your kids. So then you start reflecting back to yourself and you're like, I want to make those decisions for myself. Then you start looking right. at your partner and you're like, I want you to make those decisions for yourself and I want to help you do that. And then you're like, Mom, I also would like you to make those decisions for right. yourself. <laughs> and I think that book does such a good job of really inspiring that.
1: Oh, it does. I mean, it did. It changed the trajectory of where our family was going to go and especially, yeah, how I am going to to approach womanhood with my daughter's. Because mm-hmm. that was the first time that I that I actually started to look at you know menstruation as not being a curse and something I have to just um, you know muscle through and deal with, but being a beautiful mm-hmm. part of who we are as females. And so it did. I mean, that changed the way that I approached it with my girls. And now my girls, as we're are nearing you know puberty and adolescence, I mean, we have had. They, they know a lot. We've had a very open conversation and they're not looking at any of it as it being a dread thing, more as just new stages in life.
0: Yeah. That's so powerful to start those conversations now because one thing that I've experienced in my own journey and I definitely see as a theme in s- among so many of the women that I know, that we've interviewed on the show, that I've, you know, read books of theirs or, you know, anything like that is that The transition to motherhood is, for many women, a a period where they are sort of awakening and listening to their intuition for the first time. And so many people share exactly what you just did I had this first birth experience and I realized I did not understand anything about advocacy about autonomy mm-hmm. about like co-creating my journey about showing up to it in any way that actually had an influence or an impact on on what would happen in my life. Mm-hmm. And and you have these experiences that are so huge and so transformational that for so many women it is the first time they're facing a lot of these questions and a lot of these concerns and it it's just so it's so powerful And so amazing. And I think that on some level, it's, it's very natural that, that, that is an awakening season because no matter how clued in you were before that, there are just new things that happen when you enter your childbearing years that you just can't process before that time. Mm -hmm. But how, how much more powerful to raise your daughters in a way where, like you said, they see, they see the life-giving power of their body as a gift and they, they understand and, and accept all the different components of that mm-hmm. as as part of that gift mm-hmm. and to be able to be tuned into that intuitive voice that says this is this is who I am and this is and this is a beautiful part of me is really incredible and 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 will give them so much confidence when they when they approach their you know their own transitions to motherhood if that's you know a path they take right well, and just thinking about that reframing so much you know how many
2: people tell you you'll you just don't know how hard it is you just don't know what it's going to be like when you have a baby you just don't know how difficult that early season is you just don't know which it is no one's gonna I mean I'm not gonna say that it's not for any person but what if that reframing kind of like you're saying reframing with your girls like the period's not a curse it's a part of who you are like what if our reframing was that it like wait to see what awakens in you right wait Mm -hmm. wait to see what comes and it will come through challenge Mm -hmm. and like difficulty, but what will awaken in that season is invaluable and irreparable, right? Right. Or
0: Mm -hmm. replaceable. Yeah. Irreplaceable. Mm -hmm.
1: Totally. Oh yeah. And it's, and it is, it's been so great to have that Um, that opportunity for introspection so when we say there's something going on in my body whether that's you know cramps and bad attitude (laughs) because it is close to your time of the month or whether it's something else that feels off or something else just looking at the fact that there's such a mind body soul approach to it that we can say okay what does this what does this mean and what can what can we learn from this? Um, we, I talk mm-hmm. about when my, hus- my husband and I on our podcast, will talk about, you know, when things go wrong, looking at it as what does this make possible? And so now I look at it as when I'm feeling crabby because it is the, you know, all the stereotypical things you say for your time of the month and how it, you've got your PMS, you've got cramps, you are moody. There, there might be these things that are negative. Now I've seen them in such a different way that it's that reminder to turn inward. And to give myself mm-hmm. a moment to rest and to recharge and to pay attention to what's happening on the inside and, and mm-hmm. having those checks. So now when I see something that used to be a negative thing I had to muscle through, now I look at it as, oh, that's a reminder. I need to take a step back mm-hmm. and kind of recharge, refocus, reset and see what's this telling me and what do I need to um, maybe give some space for.
0: Yeah. How can you nourish yourself differently in that time? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's really powerful. Really
2: powerful. Okay. Going back to having your first baby and that first experience, you want to tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yes. So, um, so I definitely wanted to go all natural. And at this point I was, uh, I wanted natural, and I wasn't really sure what all that was. So when I had my first baby, I was 24 years old. Um, freshly, you know, I'd just gotten married, actually, the month I turned 22. So we'd been together for two years. We, I, had, I was, before we got married. We were both preschool teachers. I had been a nanny. I had babysat. I knew babies. I was obsessed with, you know, babies and pregnancy. And I'm like, I have this, we're going to go all natural. And I'm going to focus hundred percent on that. And mm-hmm. my husband coming from a pretty traditional family, um, and you know, everything you go and you medically you medically correct it and if, there's no question like we're going to a hospital so our compromise was we would go to a hospital but I did get a doula so I had a doula but I had a, an OBGYN that was a an amazing advocate for the patient whether the patient mm. wanted every you know full drugs in a you know, everything medical or whether they wanted something completely natural. She was really great at advocating for, um, for the patient. She actually ended up becoming, by the time we, she delivered my third baby, she's the head OBGYN at the, at the hospital that I had it in, had her in, uh, Nashville. So Mm. she was fabulous and I knew her actually knew her, met her when I was 14 because she delivered my oldest nephew who is now 22 Uh years old. So, um, so we had history. Um, I was ready to go. I trusted her. I wanted to go natural. And I thought I was 100% prepared. I had my birth plan. I understood being flexible. I'd taken my birth classes. I had done the research, fig- you know, knew where I went, went with vaccines, knew I was having a girl. I thought that I was fully ready. But the one thing I did not address is the, those emergency situations, And so um, I was terrified of a C-section or an episiotomy. I didn't want to either, Mm. didn't even want to think about it. And I didn't. (laughs) And that ended up costing me because my first delivery um, did not go as planned. She was, um, I say she was sunny side up and she was looking toward the light. And so she, um, her positioning was in such a way that she just, she was stuck. And um, for, so I ended up going, I started laboring on a Thursday afternoon, went into the hospital. They sent me home. I kept on laboring. On Friday, I went back in. They sent me home again, and then my water broke. I finally got in there Friday night, and I didn't deliver until Saturday around 4.30 p.m. So. Thursday to Friday was pretty intense and I was pretty exhausted at this point. When I got to the hospital at that point, um, my water had broken, but I had failure to progress. And so they, they told me, you know, this is what we have to do. And again, I'm at this point, I had not read the book and I'm doing everything that they're telling me to do. You know, I knew to do a birth plan, but at this point I'm in the throes of it. So she said, you know, we're going to do some Pitocin to get this rolling. And, when you have no pain meds and you get Pitocin and mid-contraction, contra- it's yeah. a very painful thing. Um, and so at that point, then things progressed faster, um, yet my body wasn't quite ready to go there. And um, mm-hmm. it ended up that for all, actually for all three children, and I'll go faster with some of them, but that transition which I had already prepared. You know, this is going to be the hardest part. Once I get over transi- transition, it's easy from there. And for me, transition was nothing compared to pushing. And so, mm-hmm. for two and a half hours with uh, my first, uh, I or no, I, I think I, did t- I pushed for two hours with Clara, and um, and she didn't budge. She was too high for uh, forceps, they couldn't suction her out, but she was just, she had already gone down into the birth canal, but she was too high for them to do anything. And her heart rate started dropping. And so at Mm -hmm. that point it was, we're going to rush in and go to go and have a Mm C-section. So they, um, they gave me the nurses, you know, with me being a first time mom, they weren't fully confident that I knew how to push. And so even though the, Um, I mean, looking back at it, you know, there are all these questions I have (laughs) as to why they chose to do what they did and why, of course, I wasn't really in the mindset to negotiate the decisions at this point. And, Mm -hmm. um, but they gave me an epidural, like a heavy duty epidural to see if I could push that way. And that didn't Mm -hmm. happen either. So really with my first pregnancy, I kind of had the sampler platter because I had all natural and then I had with this epidural and then I had a C-section, um, And so the, the epidural, I think they gave me a higher dosage because it was kind of, that was the prep for the C-section. So I pushed maybe two or three times with the epidural in, and then they went ahead and wheeled me in. Um, but the but the C-section resulted in, um, I mean, I was so exhausted. And so, you know, because of everything that happened, I experienced the the cesarean, you know, of course, trying to heal from that. But then I also had... Vaginal trauma from her halfway down, and, mm-hmm. and she had you know a little bit of a cone on her head and and so I was kind of experiencing both aspects of having a baby yeah. um yeah and it was I mean it was a good i don't i would say um hour and a half I, no, I think it was about two hours two and a half hours before I really even saw her. Because once mm-hmm. I got to the operating room, I had been through so much trauma and so much exhaustion, I could barely keep my eyes open, and um, and so my experience of that that first bonding time that I wanted so badly, I didn't get, and yeah. that was that was um, you, you know I I there were there were a lot of what ifs after that. You know, what if I had done first things time. differently? What if I hadn't had pitocin? Yeah what if she was positioned correctly and so i knew after that first delivery um that i mean first off it was it was a longer road for recovery it took me a lot to bounce back with that one um and she yeah. she was she wasn't the easiest um baby we had issues you know with latching and and all of these things it, and so my first birth experience was I, I'll find the silver lining in it is that I did experience the sampler platter. And as, you know, as somebody who works with families, it's great to be able to say I've experienced some elements of the, of of a variety of different things, um, mm-hmm. which has kind mm-hmm. of been a joke because that kind of happens in my life in general, you know, whether it's the fact yeah. I've been to public private homeschool group classes or whether it's I've tried, you know, I've had a variety of different, uh, you know, labor experiences or anything else. Um, but yeah, so, she, so that the first one um, was very intense. And so when I got to my second delivery, at this point, I had a baby who was positioned perfectly. Everything was right. Everything was perfect. So this was going to be my perfect natural delivery. So I was set up again yeah. for the same scenario. And same scenario, Um, I went in, and of course, I moved faster with this one. My water broke, um, and I was able to to progress. Everything was great. Everything was natural, and I was convinced this was perfect. And then pushing came again. And after almost three hours of pushing, and my husband making the fatal mistake of saying, I understand, (laughs) Which we know is not not the nicest thing when you're in the middle of labor. Um, so after after about three hours of pushing, though, um, she was not budging again, and it was the same thing. It's this feeling of delivering, or this this feeling like you are pushing with all your force and your might against a brick wall that doesn't that's solid, yeah. and there's not, no progress. And I felt that again, and I knew that feeling, and so I I knew that i was i was done and at that point pain uh when you're when you're trying to deliver naturally you your mi- your mind has to to um understand the pain and um and i I'd, I'd worked you know i knew how to work with the pain and flow with the pain and um and go through the contractions and when i made the decision that this baby is not coming out this baby is stuck in the same position because I know this feeling. I know this experience. At that point, mm-hmm. the pain encompassed me because I had, I, yeah. I stepped out of that mindset of working with yeah. it and I was done with it. <laughs> and yeah. Yeah. And so when that happened at that point, um, and this is where I don't even, I I don't know what their decision-making was, and maybe you guys know better about it, but um, for this one, they gave me they wanted to give me a spinal block, not an epidural. And so you can't do a spinal block until you get into the operating room. Mm -hmm. So that meant from delivery room to operating room, I am completely not dealing with pain well at all. And they're, you know, wheeling me through everywhere. And so that one, again, got a little intense because um it's it's pretty miserable to try to get a spinal block and try to be still when you are in the middle of pushing labor and um so uh, that was a little intense and then for her she ended up the cord was wrapped around her neck and she was rushed to NICU immediately and so it was Mm -hmm. a good three hours before I saw her And, um, I, I, say, saw her, I mean, I was able to see her, but they, they, they moved her pretty quickly and my husband stayed with her. And so he was able to be with her. Um, and my, my, even my OB, I mean, she was doing everything she could pulling strings to try to get her back to me sooner. Um, and, Mm -hmm. and it just, it wasn't there. So Mm -hmm. here I have two situations where I was dead set on doing natural. And I, you know, with, with my middle daughter, I eliminated the what ifs, not, you know, what if she was positioned correctly? Well, she was. What if there was no Pitocin? Well, there was none. Everything was right and it still happened. And so by the time the third baby came around, um, I was, it had been two and a half years. I'd had two cesareans and it was kind of understood that at this point I was going to need to do another cesarean. And I was pretty concerned about, uh, you know, risking getting in that position, especially after having two of them um, within the span of the past four years or not four years, mm-hmm. uh, timing-wise there. <laughs> you know what I mean? In, this, in, yeah. in a, in a yeah. fairly close span there. Um, so I started to see what are my alternatives? How can I do anything that would make this more natural even though it is a cesarean? And so I mm-hmm. actually Googled natural cesarean. And I came up with this video from, um, I think it was from somewhere in London. And it was these doctors that were doing this, This what's this called a natural cesarean. And um, so a natural cesarean does not mean you do no anesthesia because that's insanity. <laughs> you are having a serious, serious <laughs> surgery here. Um, but it opens the door to creating more of... That natural atmosphere in the operating room. So, yeah. um, I showed this video and I can explain kind of what exactly it looked like for me, but I showed this video to my OB. I sent it to her and I, unbeknownst to me at this point, she had actually been promoted to the head of the OBG or head of, head of, of, of the department in this, this was, one of the most prominent um, hospitals for delivering babies in Nashville. At the time, it kind of really was. And so I showed it to her. She passed it around to everybody in her department and um, shared it with everybody. And so I became the first Person at Baptist or in Nashville to have what's called a natural cesarean, and from there, there's been a lot of shifts in both Baptist and Vanderbilt. Um, Baptist is called a different name now, and I'm blanking. I think it's St. Thomas Health Center. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, St. Thomas Midtown is that the St. one? Yes, yeah, St. Thomas Midtown. Yeah. So, um, mm-hmm. so they had they had bit, they were starting already to make some slight movements. Something simple like. Uh, upping the temperature in the operating room, so it's not so frigid cold for uh, for the baby and for you. Um, so they had already started to do a few, but they took my list and they kind of I, I kind of got to go through that. So it was really cool to. Um, not only for me to be experiencing it, but for us to be kind of opening this up as an option for people. And um, Yeah, you're kind of pioneering something. Right. And if you go to the Baptist, or to the, I guess, St. Thomas now, to the website, there still is a video where they came to the house and interviewed me after the baby was born and um, all of that. So uh, with this one being a scheduled cesarean, I actually, of course, being all made up and everything else, I have my, (laughs) you know, the absolute perfect, delivery picture that was on the, the front of the newspaper, you know, the, the family section or whatever. Um, because it was, it was a, it was a cool experience that I was more than happy to share because it shifted to all of a sudden I realized, oh, wait a second. So we know we have natural birth. We have a voice. We we have our birth plans. Um, if we're going in for labor, we want to say all these different, you know, this is how we want it done. But this, Opened the door to the fact that it's not just in a labor and delivery room. We actually have a voice in the operating room as well, and um, that gets mm-hmm. forgotten a lot of times mm-hmm. when it becomes an operation. An operation, really yeah. When it becomes an yeah. operation, then you you're a number, or you know, this is patient whatsoever.
0: Yeah. The the power entirely shifts hands and. It's, it's really interesting how there's like what you're describing is so important. And it's, it's really, really incredible that you were able to be part of pioneering that for your community, because all around the world, there is, you know, there are communities who are starting to emphasize this more and more and more and other terms for it are gentle cesarean or family centered cesarean. And I think those are terms that we really love because they, they emphasize this kind of the approach they emphasize, like, you know, every, everyone, every hospital or every um, facility and every person may think a little bit differently about what they want to include. But really what it involves is when you think of that term family centered, it's like, it's really about promoting the transition of mother and baby. And so what can we do to promote that? Like, what can we do to to really facilitate bonding and make this a, you know, as, as emotionally comfortable of a process for, for everyone.
2: And I think, you know, many people feel like you did and how you kind of explained it. it's like everything feels really like in- supportive inclusive and kind of you know again if you're if you're fortunate to have a team that's caring for you mm-hmm. um that supports your decisions in natural labor and then it's like as soon as the operation is called it's like a whole other energy right enters the room and I do obviously as a nurse I appreciate different sides of this in the sense of sometimes it is an emergency but when it, especially when it is not fatal to you right. or your baby you still get to and I always and I heard this from another provider who I think I probably a nurse that Um, was training me and she always said to each of her patients it's something I do to all of my patients there are two reasons that you're awake in the OR one it is safer for you and your baby to not use um, general anesthesia and the other is because you have a voice in there Mm. and that's huge and I don't think
1: everybody hears that yeah
2: Yeah, and she says to them, We will talk a lot. We're going to talk about your safety. We're going to talk about the things that are going on. Mm -hmm. And you are there to tell us how you are feeling and what you are needing. And I was like, I literally just shoved that so far into my practice pocket. I was like, This is the best way I've ever heard. And it creates a completely different environment for that person because you don't feel comfortable. Nobody feels comfortable. I don't feel comfortable in an OR. Especially in the, in the circumstances where it's like you've tried so hard. Mm-hmm. There, Like you said, there's just so much emotional investment and in, for you, physical investment in each of those two births. Mm-hmm. And then you got to that point. So I think it's mm-hmm. just such a unique thing. And you know, gentle cesarean is something that's very easy to implement at places. And studies yeah. have shown it decreases, it increases, it obviously increases maternal satisfaction. But there are some studies that show that it actually decreases NICU stays and NICU admissions mm-hmm. because you're doing skin to skin and you are, you know, they've done all these trials to see because, you know, obviously an OR has to be a certain temperature for infection, but it doesn't have to be as cold. Like it can actually right. be at this level and everybody's still safe. And so I feel like there is a good energy kind of building and it's from people like you. Like people mm-hmm. like you who you know, yep. read or saw or heard and, you know, we talk about it and our community too, just kind of, I, I, I am still always shocked when people have never heard of that before right. because I feel like, you know, the facilities that I've worked at have worked so hard to have that offered, but it, it's a really good reminder that it's like, if you're out there and you're listening and, you know, maybe you are having cesareans for whatever reason, it doesn't mean that you don't get a choice or a voice or you don't get to like participate. You get to have a plan. You get to think about it and be intentional and, mm-hmm. Have oh, your yeah. family as, you know, like
0: at the center of that of your birth. Like right. you, you get to yeah. do that. And I think that's what you're saying, Ashley, yeah. is that, you know, leading up to your first birth experience, like you had thought about and planned for every other thing except for what if that emergency mm-hmm. situation happens. And, you know, and Laura has obviously been a labor and delivery nurse and and becoming a midwife and, you know, I'm a doula. And when you have those conversations with women, I think it's it's tricky because, you know, when we, when we really – emphasize the power of positive thinking and, and all of these things, there can be this tendency to, to avoid thinking about the mm-hmm. worst case scenario because, well, gosh, that's not going to help our mental state. You know, that's not going to help the affirmations that we're doing or the, you know, the, the, the positive energy that we're trying to generate. Mm-hmm. Um, but the truth is, is that when we completely avoid and and neglect to think about some things that, that can occur where actually there will be a series of, of choices that you would have to make potential, you know, again, there are certain situations that are just like, there aren't, nobody's going to be okay. making any right. decisions, but for the, you know, for a lot of cesarean sections, like there are a series of choices you will face that, or at least that you can choose to face mm-hmm. that can have a really big impact. And, and thinking through those, not in a like doomsday, like this is probably going to happen to me sort of way, but, but really really like you did like okay well gosh this is this is something that matters to me i'm going to apply the same intention that i applied to this other you know these other aspects of this process i'm going to apply that to this as well
1: mm-hmm. right Right. And yeah, I mean, and some of them can be as simple as just having, you know, on the birth plan, specifying that, you know, getting to know what's your procedure. If there is an emergency, in the case of an emergency cesarean, what's the procedure for that? And then specifying that if you are, um, if specifying, you know, if you say you want to have the cord attached until it stops pulsing and specifying either mm-hmm. in a natural delivery setting or in a cesarean setting. And so you have those things there. So there yeah. are some things that, yeah, I mean, having a baby lay skin to skin and, and being there immediately on your chest, walking the baby out, those are all things that you can go ahead and make sure that's clear on the front end, know the policies of the, of the hospital or situation that you're going into so that you understand whether that's something that they're used to or not. Um, so that so then you're all on the same page. and. And another big mm-hmm. thing that that we did for ours is that with with my third, she was scheduled. So um, so we had the prep time to be able to do this. And I, yeah, like you said, I mean, I understand in an emergency situation, sometimes these things don't happen. Um, yeah, sometimes they're not relevant. Right. Sometimes they're not relevant. And right. And so you definitely, I mean, that's something where the, what, I, and what I came to grips with, with my first two children and the fact that. Their birth story was not what I had hoped it would be. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I I had to allow that space to kind of grieve what I wished it wanted, what it was. I mean, I had to for all mm-hmm. of them. There are still those moments where I kind of look back and wish, man, if I if I was in the same state of mind that I am now and if I had done things differently, would I have been able to to have those stories be different. But I can't just look back on all of that with regret. I mean, what's done is done and and we've moved forward. And what I'm looking at is that ultimately what I wanted is I wanted a healthy baby and a healthy mom. And I got that. And that is so precious. And we, we recognize that, I mean, how I mean how precious that is and what a miracle that is. And so sometimes even if the process to get there is a little bit different. We can still go back to that that you know let's let's look at for the the greater whole we want a, a healthy baby and if that means we have to rush through the protocol and it's not that warm and fuzzy environment, it's okay you got a healthy baby from it so um mm-hmm. but but one of the other things that uh, that we did just for this one that was scheduled is we actually had every staff member that was going to be in the operating room with us they came by and and we we said we wanted to meet them all before and so they came by and personally introduced themselves to my husband and me and the mm-hmm. beauty of that is and it was it was funny because you know they're coming in and they don't know who we are they don't know how we're taking this. And if we are, you know, if we're going to be difficult to work with and, you know, yelling at people or how we're going to be. So we started it out with, again, that power of positivity, with that assumption that these people really care about my well-being, the baby's well-being, that they're doing this with a good heart and we want to work with them. And so Mm -hmm. we we got to know their name and, and, and they, they knew our name, not that I was simply patient 12, but that I really was, um, you know, that we're Nathan and Ashley Logston, and we know their name and we do something to make them laugh. You know, we break the ice, soften Mm -hmm. the mood. And so when we got into the operating room, it was all people that were on the same page. We knew each other's names and we were all working together for the ultimate goal of this healthy baby, healthy mama. And that really yeah. I think changed the atmosphere in the in the operating room. Mm.
0: Yeah, that can make all the difference. Right. Yeah. And so, and like you yeah. were saying before, you still you oh sorry. Yeah, I was just gonna say, like you was said before, you still had to process some, you know, some grief and trauma from, especially from your first two births. And, and like we've been talking about with so many guests on the show, like these things can coexist. Like you can be grateful for your healthy baby mm-hmm. and you can also grieve that you didn't get the birth experience that you want and that mm-hmm. it was a really disorienting and and difficult process for you. And and those can coexist. They don't, they are not mutually exclusive.
1: Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I think that the, um, you know, it just, the, the biggest thing out of all of my different stories or all of my stories with my deliveries and what all I have learned with reading the book and everything else, it still, it goes back to, um, really being in tune with who you are and giving yourself some grace and acceptance that things aren't going to be perfect all the time. And how can we grow from this? What can we learn from this? And, um, And just, you know, continually striving to get to know who you are better, not just look for Mm -hmm. the external, but really um, be comfortable with who you are and how you're growing. Some of the things that I learned afterward that I wish I would have known then was just recognizing how all of my body works together. Because Mm -hmm. with my first baby, you know, you're looking at pregnancy I didn't pay attention to whether you know my spine was aligned correctly or how well I was stretching or some of those things that may have made a bigger impact. As I've gone through and I've had, um, you know, I again, you know, everybody has their own path for what they choose, but for me, it was after my third child that I went to a chiropractor and she says your pelvis Mm -hmm. is is tilted and it was causing. Um, actually I I want to share this on here because, um, as you, you mama's dealing with, with pregnancies or coming uh, or having babies, one of the, you know, the big taboo topics is, is hemorrhoids, getting hemorrhoids. It's such a, (laughs) a, a frustration and something you don't want to talk about. It's embarrassing. And I, I had major, um, hemorrhoid issues after my second baby. And, um, mm. I really like my recovery after Ellie was very, very difficult because, um, of, be, because it was again, you know, yet another emergency C-section after having one two and a half years before, but then, um, I also was dealing with these hemorrhoid pains so bad, it actually went to the point of me having a colonoscopy and, and um, <clears throat> really trying to figure out what was going on. Nothing had happened after that. I have another baby. Everything is good. And all of a sudden, uh, when I have an, a seven-year-old and a four-year-old, all of a sudden, I'm dealing with hemorrhoid issues. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm pretty much a vegan diet uh, healthy weight, uh, super active. Um, why in the world? am not pregnant. Why am I having hemorrhoid issues? And I went to a doctor, a, a chiropractor who was a chiropractor and acupuncturist. And she works with a lot of mm-hmm. pregnant women and everything. And I went to her because <clears throat> I had gotten to a point of desperation where my only solution by uh, multiple doctors is to have is is you have to have have it surgically removed that Mm -hmm. I had um, a hemorrhoid pain so bad that I needed to have surgery to remove it. And
2: Mm.
1: I, at my wits end, went into a chiropractor and she talked to me about my pelvic alignment and how it was putting pressure on my, um, down on my rectum. And that, the four adjustments in one week eliminated the pain that I'd been dealing with for six months. Mm-hmm. And since then, I've had some more and I, there there is no, no hemorrhoid pain or anything else. But I mean, I look at that one situation where, okay, this is hemorrhoid pain. Well, it's supposed to be something related to, you know, overweight, poor diet, pregnancy, things like that. I didn't fit the mold for that. And... um I could have just gone that normal route. But at this point, understanding the fact that I need to look at all elements of my body and not just that I have a hemorrhoid, but what caused that and where is that coming from? And it shifted just kind of how my approach is. So I understood that this is not just a hemorrhoid issue. This is what's going on in my whole body. And when I started to align Mm -hmm. everything and whether that's, you know, intentionally getting up and moving every hour on top of doing chiropractic work and all of a sudden, um, the issue disappeared.
0: Yeah. It's, it's amazing when we listen to our bodies mm-hmm. like, and just how interconnected things are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how often it shows up that, you know, it's something that's going on emotionally that actually causes, you know, physical manifestations in our body and how, how we can desperately search for conventional answers to, you know, to the things that are, Going on in our bodies, and and sometimes the answer is
1: is deeper, you right. know, than that. And that is something that um you know I I in being very holistic with my family, we don't ever look at the band aid approach. We want to look at what's the cause and you know, what's deeper, um, where are the symptoms coming from. And when I do marriage and family coaching. My focus with families is I work with growing families, so families with young children in the home and helping them to kind of shift from chaos and reaction mode to living the life of intention and not waiting for one day, but really looking now at how you can create that family life you love to come home to. And one of the things that I do kind of as the foundation with all of my coaching is I give them a personality snapshot first. And this is based on disc assessments and it's, uh, you know, disc personality profiles, which have been around for, I mean, since the 1920s. And, um, and I give them not to smack a label on somebody and say, this is who you are and you've got to figure out, you know, this is the only way you are, but because it is an amazing tool to just open the door to self-awareness and yeah. to see what resonates with you and um and what doesn't and in doing that though i'm helping families learn how to see what their strengths are and also see how to communicate with one another and motivate and encourage because just mm-hmm. like the you know, the surface issue of, in you know, for this situation, a hemorrhoid was the issue. There was a deeper cause and a deeper misalignment in my body that I needed to rectify in, in order to heal the other issue. Well, in the same thing, when I'm dealing with families, sometimes the way a, a family member reacts to a situation may be really frustrating, like a a partner or a child saying, I don't care. And this is a kid who, or a parent or a partner who is typically super supportive and caring. And all of a sudden I'm saying, I don't care. And you take it as this personal attack, but come to find Mm -hmm. out and understanding their personality style when they feel that they don't have security in a situation and they're feeling really frazzled and insecure that their their reaction, that negative, when their strength becomes a negative reaction, it results in um, shutting down because it's better to shut down Mm -hmm. than it is to face a conflict. And so understanding that all of a sudden, it's not just, I don't care. That's the surface response. What I'm looking at is what's deeper than the reaction and what's under the surface. And how can, how can I reach that? How can I connect to that? So if I have a partner or a child who says, I don't care, um, me knowing the personality styles in my home, I'm able to say, okay, what do we need to get at here? And I, and it may be that it's allowing for some one-on-one time and some support or finding some consistency in other areas of their life. And all of a sudden they care again and they're excited about it because they've found security. And that's one of, mm-hmm. one of, you know, there's four different main fears and triggers that kind of jump out and, and kind of help you to get a little bit deeper. But it's been so powerful for families because, reactions tend to be more from the surface and right. um, it's those quick not thinking and not going much deeper. And if we can be proactive and, and, you know, moving forward with intention on what we want, just like the power of positive thinking and, you know, the law of attraction and, and kind of, you know, being intentional with your mindset and manifesting your desires I mean, doing that with your family, and being proactive on what's going on in your home and setting the, you know, setting that kind of the rudder of the day is what my dad says. You know, the rudder directs mm-hmm. the ship, you know, setting the direction of of how not just your day, but your, your week, your month, your family life is going to look. We have a lot of people that spend... A lot of time creating business statements and vision statements, and mission statements, but never right. thought to actually address that when it comes to their home life, and yeah. especially with small children in the home, and you've got tiny little curveballs, you know, with constant needs, it's it's easy to then fall into just becoming a victim of circumstance where you're just reacting to
0: just constantly exactly. reacting, yeah,
1: yeah, right,
0: yeah. I mean. You know, I think that that's been the journey that my family has been on probably for the last three years. And it started with us seeing, you know, we, we saw a therapist for like weekly for like two and a half years. And we started those conversations with this realization that we don't share a vision for our life. Mm -hmm. Like we both have individual visions for the things that we're passionate about. I personally have a vision for what I want, like how I want to raise my kids and what kind of person, you know, what kind of people they will hopefully become, you know, I, I personally have that Mm -hmm. vision, but we don't share a vision and we don't, we don't share, you know, a a direction. And so really starting to, to identify that and fine tune it and, and compromise in some ways where we're needed to, to arrive at something that is really, really shared and is really, really meaningful to us. Mm Um, and even just, you know, the, the time that we spent, Recently, with you guys down south, was felt really, really well timed because, you know, you guys have a lot of components of your life that are similar to components that are emerging in our life, like traveling and homeschooling, and and all of these things that, like it or not, take a great deal of intention to pull off. Mm -hmm. You know, it you really you can't you can't travel, you can't school your children, you can't do these things without. Without being present on some level to, to those choices and to how they play out. And for me, it's always so beneficial to, to meet and spend time with people who, who've, you know, been in, in slightly deeper waters than I have been in, Mm -hmm. you know, and they have some of these, and not even necessarily like tips and tricks, but really just kind of this, this presence and this, And this awareness around what it looks like to, to create a life with intention and, and a family life with intention. And I, I love what you're doing and I love the life that you guys have created and watching, you know, watching you guys up close doing that with your girls, um, and really, really kind of throwing convention to the wind in so many ways is, is really inspiring. Um, will you share a little bit more with us about the work you do? You you've talked about this coaching, Mm -hmm. you talk about the personality snapshots, how does, how does that look and, and how can, how can people interact with the work that you do?
1: Well, um, a a good one is, is even going along the family vision lines. So, um, so, I, I worked in the career side for a long time. I still do. My dad's an author and a career coach, and I manage his business. Um, so he, he's working with people to find the work they love. So I've grown up knowing personality styles and, um, and knowing the entrepreneurial world very well because of who my father was, and then moving into the role of actually helping other entrepreneurs and um, taking people through a coaching certification program and everything that we do Through his company, forty-eight days, and so Mm. as I started on my own journey of of marriage and then parenthood, um, those gave me experiences to connect and relate in a different way, and it was so much my passion. I mean, family has always been my passion, and so I was the one who I'd be up in the front speaking about personality styles and how to use them in coaching. And then right afterward, I'm in the back with the couple entrepreneurs that are there saying, okay, now this is how you navigate these different personality dynamics in your home so that you guys, you know, have your sanity and are supporting each other through this, through the up and down process of living this entrepreneurial lifestyle. And so that's kind of how I morphed into doing my own coaching and what I kind of have as those, those basics, first steps is understanding who you are, because of course we need to have a good grasp of, of where our strengths are and what might trigger those negative reactive behaviors first, but understand who we are. And then coming together with your partner, understanding who they are and Starting to work together as a team, kind of looking at you know what is your goal what's what's your goal for your family, and then bringing the kids in so it's it's understanding the personality styles in your home and then it's creating a vision of where you want it to go um, as mm-hmm. a coach, it's different from a counselor and there's there's incredible merit in in having counselors and counselors help so much, especially with processing through. Uh, trauma and pain in your life that you have have been through. And so a coach is not a replacement or a competition for a counselor. It's a different area of focus. And so for for me, I'm looking, I'm taking families wherever they are. I mean, and I've had families that are in crisis mode and I've had families who are doing really great and just don't want to get to that point. Um, But it's taking them and saying, okay, this is where you are right now. This is, this is, what it is in your family, where do you want to go? And then how are we going to get there? And we are looking to move forward with it. So the only time we're referencing the past is only as, as far as how it's propelling us forward, but we actually are looking at a a goal of what the family wants and a family vision is so important for that. But it doesn't have to be complex. It's not a long and grandiose. And I mean, in our home, it's six words. I have small children and it's six simple words. Explore, respect, listen, connect, learn, and love. But in doing that one thing, what I did is we we agreed on all of that as a family. It was a unifying thing that we were able to do together. And then we had this statement, you know, on our wall that we can point to and say, Hey, is what you're doing, is that fit this? Is that who we want to be? And now it's not just me going, Hey, you're being a jerk and stop it. It's, does this reflect it? And so it kind of gives you that third party, which is what, you know, doing the personality profile, having a family vision. These are things that kind of allow for a third party, which oftentimes, especially when you're in, um, in a, a family situation where maybe there are um tensions and there's sensitivity and um defensiveness going on, it really helps to be able to not just have it feel like finger pointing or blaming when you're wanting yeah. to, you know, call each other out in yeah, love. Which is just
0: Yeah, it's just that reactivity and it's and it's such a such a spiral, mm-hmm. you know, I'm reacting to you, so then you react to me. I mean, why would we why would you not react right? to me because I just yelled at you. Mm -hmm. And then, and then you just like kicked me because I yelled at you.
1: Like, of course, of course we're doing this. Right. Right. And it goes and it spirals down. And, uh, so doing it and involving the whole family has been, it's, it's been a really powerful thing. And I coach in this topic because I believe so passionately in it for myself. I mean, so often you find people when they are Ex, you know, they're qualified as experts in an area or they, they speak on a certain thing or teach on a certain thing. It's because that's their, uh, I mean, that's, it's personal to them. It has become something that is that personal message. And so um, part of me being, being a coach is always being willing to grow and be teachable myself. You know, we, we Mm -hmm. talk about the mark of a great coach is that they have a coach. And so we're, we're always continually growing and morphing. And what I'm sharing is like, like what you shared earlier, um, Lisa was, you know, that kind of have connecting with people that are, that maybe have been a step forward in what it is that you're going through or something else like that. When I share, I share a, because there's somebody who hasn't quite gotten to the point that I'm at that could hear that message and B, because when I share it, I'm accountable to it. So it makes me become Mm -hmm. a better wife and a better mother and a better individual confident in who I am, because as I share it, I have to own it. And I have to look at how am I practicing what I preach and how can I incorporate this into my life? So, um, it's been a great thing as a mom to step up in this role because I think it has, it's given me such accountability to be able to grow with my family and create that community with other, with other growing families for us all to, you know, lift each other up.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. Right. And I just love that idea of opening
1: all of this discussion up to
2: your children. I feel like Mm -hmm. People are more and more likely to Mm -hmm. kind of open themselves up to that now. Maybe it's generational. Maybe it's the time we are in life to kind of explore themselves. But mostly parents see that as their responsibility to explore about their own children. Like I I talk to so many moms and dads who have read a million books, listened to a million podcasts about how they are going to shape and understand the vision for their kids. But I love the idea of including children in the process and also in the. Mm -hmm in
0: the well, the active living of that. Right. Well, because it's yeah. amazing what things right. Yeah, totally. And just like you were saying before about the, you know, the gifts of womanhood, <laughs> it's, you know, like we're giving them these tools early on. Oh my gosh, my son is, is going, going through a, a bout of really kind of being afraid at night again, which was not really a thing for a while. And We've done affirmations with him for years, but they've never been something that he really has been like, yes, I own this and I'm mm-hmm. like, this is effective and I and I love it and I do it and I initiate it. It was always kind of like us initiating us and him kind of like dragging his feet, mm-hmm. you know? Um, And and in this last few weeks where he's been really kind of struggling with being afraid at bedtime again, he has, I mean, it's like the first thing he says, can can we do our affirmations? And he's initiating them. He's leading them. And he mm-hmm. is coming up with some of the most incredible stuff. He's not just regurgitating what I'm telling mm-hmm. him and I think wow, if I had tools like that at the age of 9. Right. Right. Not that my life would be perfect right. and not that I wouldn't struggle with anything, but just to have I mean we just didn't we just didn't have that kind of right. stuff and and to give these gifts to our children to give the gift to your girls of really being present and intentional with their own life realizing that they have a role
1: in in how their life you know plays out it's it's so powerful it is it is and sometimes we don't necessarily give our kids credit i mean we have to think about you know, just a few generations ago, kids were resources. I mean, my dad was remembers at four years old, his job was to plow the hayfields. I mean, they'd set him on the tractor. He was too small. They'd have to wait down the seat for him to even get on. And he would ride the tractor and plow the fields. Now, granted, he was raised strict Mennonite and that was a different lifestyle, but, you know, there were generations where children were there were many, many children for the fact that they were a commodity and a resource to work on the farm. And our kids, you know, we want to love them and let them be kids and let them just enjoy their youth. Yes. Uh, and and we have the privilege of being able to do that here in the in the, you know, there are a lot of us that do, that have that privilege. And it is a privilege. So yeah, I think we don't give our kids enough credit. I mean, if we think about just a few generations ago, I mean, people were having large families, not just because they loved all the sweet children, but there were a lot of them doing it as commodities to help um, in in their family businesses, help to bring in money. And I mean, there are still kids like that in the world. And you know, the three of us are fortunate enough to not have that scenario in, in our home. Um, yet on the flip side, I mean, there, there are kids that they, they have street smarts, you know, they've, they've grown up on the street. They understand how to work that. I mean, my dad, when he was four years old was, uh, his job was to milk the cows at four thirty in the morning and then to hop on the tractor and take care of the, um, take care of, of plowing the hay fields, And I mean, he was, mm-hmm. they had to stick a brick on the seat to keep it, <laughs> to keep the tractor going. And those were, you know, it's not that I'm saying you need to put your four-year-old to work. I mean, by all means, let your kids enjoy being a child. And recognize, though, that they soak in a lot more than we give them credit for. And they're capable of a lot more than we give them credit for. And yeah. sometimes those things that we're doing, those planting those seeds, we don't recognize it until all of a sudden, in a moment of need, that's what comes back out. And that can be a positive mm-hmm. or a negative. So if they're they're sensing the tension in the home and the secrets in the home and um, them being shut out or... Like what you've you talked about, Melissa, you know, planting those seeds of positivity and um, helping kids to understand the law of attraction and what the golden rule is, and all of these things that we can do to help them to understand how to navigate the world, then even if you think it was random, he didn't do it, now all of a sudden, you know your son in his time of need is able to. Uh, pull something and yeah. yeah, to be able to have that tactic to now be able to step up and own it as his own. And mm-hmm. that is such a powerful yeah. thing.
0: Yeah. yeah. It's so huge. And and just the emotional intelligence, you know, that's obviously a term we've been using for a few years now, but, mm-hmm. but really building that emotional intelligence and giving kids the opportunities to, to forge that intelligence, you know, not, right. not like, not negotiating all of those
1: situations for them. Right. Right. And I talk to my kids. I mean, you know, when they're young, they can be very egocentric. And and, I, and I'm an advocate for a family-centered home, not just a child-centered home. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, there, there is a lot of risk for a relationship, an intimate relationship when it is strictly a child-centered home. So I'm a big advocate of everybody in the family having a voice. And one of the things mm-hmm. is, is helping kids to recognize, you know, even when their world is so small and so much with them as the center, helping them to recognize that they have an impact. I mean, my kids have known from the very beginning, they make an impact in the world. The world is, I mean, is every person who they come in contact with is affected by them. And when, when we ask our kids, you know, where do you go to school? Everywhere. Who's your teacher? Everyone. They recognize that everyone is their teacher and that they also are teaching every person that they're coming across. We're impacted by one another. And when they start to understand that what they do and, you know, whether it's screaming in the middle of a grocery store or whether it's, you know, giving a hug to a friend that's hurting, that that is making an impact beyond themselves and, right. and helping them to see that. Oh my gosh, what a, what a powerful tool for them as adults and yeah. how important for us as adults to recognize that as much as we can say that, you know, I need to do what I need to do, we're making an impact on everybody else as well. And it does yeah. affect more because we are so yeah. interconnected in this world.
0: Well, and if you think about how many people, both adults and children, are running around to the planet right now thinking that their lives don't impact anyone or mm-hmm. anything else, if everything from the environment to, you know, the just the, the people in our immediate circles, its it's really... Mm-hmm. Really kind of scary, and I think that yeah, putting putting that power back and that awareness and that responsibility back into the hands of children, and and not thinking that it's too much to ask of them, is a really big step.
2: Yeah, I think yes. it's such a such a beautiful idea and expression that you know I get to see in Melissa's family, obviously, um, <laughs> and then also just in hearing from women too, and just feeling like we are moving to that place where we really want. I think you know Melissa and I hung. We were hanging out last. Talked so much about personal responsibility. Like, mm-hmm. how do you teach kids about that? And I love the idea of approaching it from like you, you matter, you impact. Right,
1: yeah. right. Yeah, and we do. We give our children and us opportunities to reset and reboot. Wipe the slate clean. I made fun of uh, my husband saying that the other day that we he uh, we could modernize it, wipe the blackboard clean. Nobody has a slate anymore. <laughs> but mm-hmm. you know, have those opportunities to say yes, you're making an impact. And right now, it's a it's not a good one. So let's let's just reset. Let's start again. And yeah. those do overs can be really powerful. And you know, even my five year old, she gets really worked up. And I understand, you know, her personality style. she will get really worked up. she will get really upset. And she'll come up to me and she'll say, I need to do a reboot. So I don't mm-hmm. throw my kids in timeout, but my kids take timeouts not as a negative but as a, an opportunity to reboot recharge reassess reevaluate mm-hmm. and each kid yeah. does it you know a little differently my introverted child a time out is a reward for her and i give that to her i give her that opportunity to be alone to recharge and not have to hear her sister's talking nonstop and then you know <laughs> my other child it's she needs to have a moment to sit with her emotions because it is so intense she's she's very quick to react and jump and she recognizes that and so at five years old, she's saying, "I don't think that I'm going to be, you know, I I I'm not con- in control enough to be kind right now, so I'm going to move out of the situation until I can be." And you know, that's, yeah, that's that's huge so, that she can do that. Huge. Yeah, but it's been so much from the very beginning. I say, you know, you are you're strong, you're powerful. Your reaction to life, your approach to life, impacts other people around you. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, I mean, own those feelings, do and feel every emotion that you have and figure out how you can process through that emotion, um, you know, in a positive way that isn't just taking it out on somebody else. And so it's, it's been a really cool experience to go through it. And just like with the coaching, you're sharing my story to keep me accountable. It's sharing it with my kids keeps me accountable. So then I say to them, you know, I need a reset. Mommy's crabby right now and I'm not well, going, my, my answer is just going to be no, I'm in a bad mood. So I need to reboot. <laughs>
0: yeah, Our kids are the ultimate accountability partners because they're the first to call us out. I mean, they, and they see everything they, and they see everything that's below the surface too. I mean, there are a lot of things that we could hide from the world around us that we can't hide from our kids and they will not ignore it. <laughs> no, So it, it's pretty, it's uh, pretty great built-in accountability.
1: (laughs) Oh yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We may not went to all the time, but boy, it's such a beautiful thing because if we don't allow our children to call us out and to check them, um, I'm I'm a big fan of mutual respect. And so, you know, you want to demand respect from your kids, you give them respect. You don't just force it down their throats because that creates that resentment and tension. I mean, we know that we were the teens that rebelled. I mean, I, I know that we all kind of go through our process of shifting from childhood to adulthood. And during that time, oftentimes what happens is our parents were on such a pedestal that mm. all of a sudden, when we see the world in a bigger perspective than our own home bubble, that can get knocked so drastically that um, that it can almost go to the other extreme of demonizing our parents and not giving them any credit. But if we allow our kids to see us as human from the beginning, they understand we're not perfect. We don't get it all right. And we're very open that the way we, I mean, the way I parented my first two-year-old as opposed to my last two-year-old is a big difference because I'm I'm a different parent now. I've learned things differently. I approached my child differently and knowing her personality, it was a different thing. And so, you know, we share with our kids when we get it wrong and we're quick to apologize and to say, Hey, we messed up because I would rather have my kid know me as a human through my whole life than for it to be something where, yeah, you're reevaluating what you thought was perfection. And now it's been shattered.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's That's so powerful. Yeah. So Ashley, how can people find you? How can they work with you?
1: So the, um, really one of the, the best ways is just going to my website is called mama says namaste and that's M-A-M-A. So mama says com, And, um, There, if you obviously listening to this, if you're a podcast listener, once a week, my husband Nathan comes on with me, and we do the Mama Says Namaste podcast. So you can search for that, um, or go to my website and click on the podcast. And so the podcast is a great way to stay connected. We share about our travels as well as dive into Q and A topics based on our six areas of focus. So we talk about personality styles. We talk about marriage and intimacy. We talk about parenting, we talk about um, alternative education, or what I call functional education, and I dive into what that means, Um, and then uh, minimalism and family travel. And so those are our six topics that all go toward having that intentional family. And mm-hmm. we dive into that with the podcast and um, and then blog posts and weekly Facebook lives. So there's a lot of opportunities. But I think a, a great way to get started is just if you go to the home page, there is a pop-up that will come up to get a free meditation. And it is a meditation Again, I did, uh, I did for my audience and I did for me (laughs) to Mm. be something to kind of start my day out, to give it, to be intentional about the mindset and the framework on how I was going to approach myself, dealing with my partner, dealing with my children, and then connecting with the environment. And so it covers those four areas and is, is a great, you know, short little meditation to be able to go through to just kind of draw awareness to those critical aspects that impact all of us.
0: Mm. I love that. Thank you. Well, we will share a link to your website in the show notes. So people can, can easily just click on that link. And, and I know that you're also on Instagram, so we'll share links to, to your account there. Yes. Uh, so people can follow you and, and be inspired. Ashley is very inspiring. I will tell everyone. (laughs) She just, she just, she, yeah, you just, you live, you know, you walk the walk and, and it's really, really inspiring to see someone that doesn't just, you know, want to pursue these things, but really, really has crafted their entire life around, around making it happen. So I'm grateful to have met you. I'm grateful that you came on the show today. It's been really, really fun hearing your perspectives and your experiences. So thank you for being so generous with us in sharing your story.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you very much, man. As a mama, we all love to share our birth stories. And I want to do it in a way that even though mine weren't mine weren't perfect and that wonderful experience. Um, There's such power in being able to share and even reflect back and go back to what did I learn from this? And Mm -hmm. how have I grown since then? And just seeing how much my life has moved forward since those, since those deliveries that of course made such a big impact on my life in so many ways because of the children that, you know, that came from those as well yeah absolutely
2: and if you're listening to us um and you haven't connected with us yet uh, please go over and follow us on instagram and connect with us and things we're doing very timely with what ashley just said we are um also pursuing some things and have helping women share their stories with each other whether that be through melissa's endeavors with trust your body again or my upcoming trauma birth groups
0: wonderful yeah thanks everyone
2: thanks for listening to mother birth And a special thanks to our editors, sponsors, and guests for this week's show. As always, this show is created by Lauren Melissa and is intended as general information that does not constitute or substitute medical advice of any kind. You should always consult with your primary care provider with respect to your
0: medical care if you are pregnant, planning on becoming pregnant, or in the postpartum period. In this episode, we may use affiliate links to products and services that we know and trust. These are products we have personal experience with and believe that they will benefit our community. When you use these links, Mother Birth receives a small commission. What you pay for the product or service doesn't change at all. It's the same price. If we share something that includes a discount code, we may still receive an affiliate commission without affecting the discount offered to you. Thank you for supporting our show.